0: We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode.
1: Hello and welcome to an exciting episode of the Revenue Builders podcast. I'm John McMahon, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, John Kaplan, also known as Cap.
0: Johnny Mac, how are you, brother? Good, dude. You? I'm doing fantastic. Excited for this podcast today with JD.
1: Yeah, you should be. So uh, he's a very special guest. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it, Johnny. He started his incredible career as a college and professional football player. Then he moved into sales where he was selling medical device equipment and computer-aided design software. But football came calling again, so he became a receiver coach for an NFL team. Then, offensive coordinator for a D1 college team, and then head coach at a D1 college team, which he'll tell us a little bit about. And he now manages and runs a private equity firm. Please welcome my friend J.B. Brookhart.
2: Hey, John. Hey, Cap. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: We're uh, we're really really ecstatic to to have you, JD. And and um, you know, we use a lot of sports analogies and, and football analogies. And, and since we have somebody with, you know, great character and background to, to kind of mix these in with us today. Um, I, I'd love to just kick it off and ask you about some of the parallels that, you know, for coaching success and what have you found are, some of the keys to coaching young players to be successful.
2: Yeah, well, it it was an eye-opener for me. I I learned a lot. Obviously, the sales background that I had with Xerox and with John at Parametric uh, were extremely valuable, but learned some quick lessons early in coaching. And uh, I had a young kid from the inner city of Cleveland that uh, I was coaching big six foot four, 240, and We were in our beginning workouts when we first got there trying to change the culture. And I said something to him, and he looked at me. I said, Hey, come on, trust me, John. And he looked at me and goes, I don't trust anybody but my mom. And that's when I realized you you really had to invest and and to care and and let these guys uh, develop some trust in you. We we went on that first game we were playing in that fall. I remember standing in the uh, national anthem next to John. And uh, it was one of my greatest moments in football. This is my first time I'm coaching legitimately with these college kids. He puts his arm around me. He goes, "Hey, coach, I trust you, man." And wow. so it really, it really changed the way uh, I approached these kids. I just assumed because I'd been in the NFL that they were going to uh, take my knowledge as, as the word, and it wasn't the case, you know. So I think developing that trust and, and really caring for those kids on a different level is a big piece of it. Uh, and then you also, once you get to that point, you really, I think it was Tom Landry, said something like, you know, a coach is somebody who tells you what you don't want to hear, shows you what you don't want to see, so you can become what you probably always dreamed of. Wow. And that was kind of my motto. Here's what I'm doing. I'm, it's nothing personal, but I'm going to show you where you're making mistakes. I'm going to talk to you about those things. And then the other thing I learned from one of the best mentors I've ever had was a constant, consistent message. Are you, know, you, you telling them the same things repeatedly over and over that it becomes drilled in, into their psyche? So those were some of the things I felt really uh, helped me help these young guys succeed.
1: So, J.D., that, that happens with a lot of sales leaders, too, where they have a team and I think they believe that, hey, I'm now the sales leader, so everybody should just trust me and do what I say and do what I tell them to do. And can you walk through a little bit of how you actually believe you built that trust with that player?
2: Well, well, one, you got to listen, right? I mean, everybody's got a life. You don't know what's going on in that life in that particular moment. So I think you got to be attentive to those things. But I think you got to do some things that are in a real personal nature, whether that's having uh, all the receivers over for a barbecue at the house that they see in a different environment. Uh, you know, might be taking out your employees for a dinner or drink, but, uh, they, they need to see as a person, not just as that sales leader or that coach. Uh, and I, and I think that helps the bonding piece of it that uh, you develop with that group. And, yeah. um, you know, and then, and then you, you find those times where you can get them one-on-one and, and find out more about them and, and, and you help them through some situations. These kids came from some, a number of them came from some real difficult backgrounds and, right. uh, You know, to do things to help them become a better man uh, was a big part of what I thought I was doing and why I wanted to be at the collegiate level.
1: Yeah. In sales, we talk about the fact that you need to almost get intimate with some of your people. And the way to do that is, you know, you're on a plane, you're in a train, you you know, you're in a car. Use that time not to look at your phone, but to get to know the person. So, you know what drives them, where they, what their background was what their motivations, fears, and those types of things are in order to build that type of trust.
2: Absolutely. I, I had a, uh, a young man that was a talented, talented kid. He actually won the Bolitnikoff Award as the top receiver in the nation as a sophomore. And just through spending time with him, I made him come in early, early every time we were having uh, receiver meetings just because I knew he couldn't take corrections in front of the group. You had to do it prior to you gloss over it in front of his peer group uh, and he reacted much better that way. So you, you have to take those things into account because you're dealing with a lot of different diverse personalities.
1: Yeah, see that's JD. the thing. I think a lot of new leaders, especially brand new sales leaders, believe that everybody's just like they are. So everybody's right. cookie cutter and they treat everybody the same. And then what you're really bringing out here is that every single player, is completely different. You really got to get to know those players in order to be able to motivate them.
2: Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I mean that, you got to know yourself too. Uh, you know, I, I thought I was a certain way. And we had a sports psychologist come in and spend some time with the coaching staff. And he really helped me understand how I operated, what motivated me. You know, I, I didn't want success. I didn't want money. I didn't. Mike, motivation was a fear of failure, plain and simple. And it would work to make sure I didn't. And so, you know, he taught us how to, to really dig in and find out what got these guys going.
1: Yeah. Hey. But I think what you're also bringing out – one more point, Johnny, sorry. Yeah. I think what you're oh. also bringing out, which is really important, is it's not only you getting to know the players on your team, but it's your ability to understand your effect on those players. Like what motivates you? And how you might be coming across to those different players, because that's that's really key in being able to motivate people.
2: No, no question. I, you know, we we'd always, uh, you know, you, you, I shared those things with the players. What really got me going, what I was trying to do, and uh, you know, the, the model we always had in the, the receiver room was the difficult we do immediately, the impossible takes a little longer. And to create that culture and to motivate those kids, and there are different ways uh, to achieve those things. So. It's a fine mix. It's a fine mix of, of stirring it up, just getting it right on a, on a consistent basis with a very broad group of young men.
0: And, J.D., you've had a, you've had a great spectrum of um, realization of understanding yourself and then your relationship with your players, and, and, and you get that kind of operating rhythm down. And, and then you become kind of like the CEO and you become a head coach. Now you're managing other coaches. And um, you know, younger people have a tendency to look at hypocrisy and or they have a nose for it. And um, you know, they their old saying about losing the locker room when you ask people to do stuff that you're unwilling to do yourself or or that you're being hypocritical around. What did, what what is some of the great advice that you've given to um new coaches, new leaders? as it relates to really establishing establishing those relationships?
2: Um, well, I, I think, you know, one, they have to see your actions like you talked about, the, the servant leadership of how you treat people. Uh, we, we had uh, used to have high school seven-on-seven seven tournaments at our indoor facility. And you had the old little green Gatorade cups right here that uh, I still use these. Uh, that we used to you know, have the kids get their water from. And, well, you know, you got 20 different teams in this indoor facility. A lot of 16- and 17-year-olds aren't really uh, uh, <laughs> adept to taking care of things like it's their own, so they just throw them on the ground. Camp would end, and there'd be 800 cups around the field, and, uh, you know, coaches would sit there on the sideline. They'd be talking with each other, other people, and I'd go and start picking up the cups. And Eventually, those guys would come and do those things. But – uh, you know, I think everybody's got to establish their own genuine leadership role. and I think you have to encourage that piece of it. You can certainly model it. You can certainly school them on different ways to approach these things. But it still goes back to, you know, me, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And if I did anything, I certainly did that with, with the coaches that I had. Uh, you know, but really, i, I tell you the, the the greatest advice I had as I got my first head coaching job was my father-in-law who was a CEO and founder of a, a big company. He told me in this, he goes, number one, you, he goes, you got to have three rules to hire it. Number one, you got to know how to hire two. You got to know how to fire. The number three is you got to do number one. So, uh, so well you don't have to do number two. Mm-hmm. So I spent a lot of time on that piece of hiring the right guys. And if you look at uh, the guys I've hired, Almost to a T, they've all gone on and done very, very well.
1: Mm. Let's stay on that a little bit, J.D. So recruiting, especially at the college level, where players are changing every year, (laughs) can be a real grind. But recruiting, you know, if you recruit a great team, you can look really good as a leader, whether that's business or football. Can you talk a little bit about how, as a coach, you had to, you know, i you know recruiting and what some of the things that you had to do
2: Wow, well, i mean I, I can't imagine what these guys are going through today with the transfer portal it, it's nuts and i hear what saban's doing he's got a pretty get a very good handle on it but back in the day it wasn't as easy to transfer uh so recruiting to me was something that was a year-round process i, I mean that's it's you know, i always tell you it's not about the x's and the o's it's about the johnny's and the joes and you know, the better players you get, the better you're going to be. Uh, you know, there's a lot more to that because you also, also have to get into the chemistry and character of a group. Uh, but it was a year-round proposition that we, we had to diligently take time out and, and spend time on that because that goes back to the relationships you built. That's how you differentiate yourself with these high school kids uh, and convincing them why they're going to come to your university. But – is, as much as like John for example, we brought you up to teach our guys about sales the uh, staff we had that uh, you know I was the only one that had any background in the business right. and certainly it comes from better from an industry expert than your head coach. Uh, so I appreciated you doing that and made a difference with the number one recruited class in, in our division. Um, but recruiting is not as once you figure out how to recruit and to uh, sell what you have, you know, the, the evaluation thing really is the biggest because you can find some great players. You look at every Super Bowl and there's a bunch of two-star players that are on right. that field. They're not four and five stars across the board. And so, so the evaluation... Is, there, is,
1: that, is that go to the character of the person a lot of times that you recruit in character? I
2: think that's a whole... That's a huge piece of it. Um, but also philosophy. You know, I, I used to... We used to like to take a bunch of these tall kids that were a little bit thin at the time, but had a decent frame. I used to look at wrists and knees and how big they were going to get. And there's a kid down in Columbus, Ohio, that was a really good lacrosse player, good football player, not a great one. But he was about 6'6", 240. Well, Ohio State's not going to take that kid. They they want the ready-made. And so we took that kid, ended up putting on a hundred pounds in about a year and a half became a three-year starter and a heck of a, heck of a player. So, um,
1: you know, as you're going through the evaluation
2: piece is just the biggest part of it. You know, I think then you, you then you add the ability to differentiate yourself in that recruiting process, which you helped us with, John. Uh, that's a big deal. And, and, you know, I think most people that haven't been in the business, they're going to go throw everything at the wall and hope something sticks with the kid and, you know, I thought we did a good job of really having our coaches go in and dig, find out uh, who really was the champion. Was there a mentor in the area that really had this kid's ear? Who right. was the decision maker that was helping him? Who, who's going to lead you through this? Yeah, you know, sometimes it's a teacher. But if you don't ask those questions, if you don't dig deep and if you're just going to throw everything out, kind of luck of the draw at that point. You want, you want to steer things to your favor. And so sure. as you're leading these questions and – you know, you're hoping that you're you're taking them on a path that really hits your bright spots at the school.
1: Yeah. And then the other th- difficulty is not that you have to recruit these kids every year. The other difficulty is, like in sales, you may just have five guys that are going to a territory. So pretty much it's the same position. What The difficulty you have in football is every position is completely different. Set of skills, set yeah. of knowledge, and types of characteristics you're looking for. So that had to make it more difficult too, to find the ideal candidates for each position.
2: It was, you know, you, you set your position parameters, uh, your minimums that you were looking for. Uh, and you always had exceptions to those, right? One of the best kids I ever coached was a five foot five running back that, you know, most kids signed in February. We took him late in April, you know, gosh, because we needed somebody, just some depth. And this kid ended up being an all league player and, uh, so you can't stick exactly to those parameters. But, um, you know, you also, you also got to consider uh, the getability of these kids. Are you going to waste a lot of time on a kid that's looking at Alabama and Ohio State if you're at a University of Akron? Right. Not very often, right? And so uh, you got to be conscious about where you spend your time uh, and how these kids meet the parameters. And then you got to dig deep. Uh, into what I believe is a, a, really a cornerstone to a program is the car- character and chemistry of it. Mm. Uh, and do they fit that? Are they Those kind of guys. And, you know, one of the questions we really dug to find out is, do they love ball? Or do they like being on Twitter, Facebook, and showing highlights? Because those right. guys, not necessarily. Some, they're not the guys in the weight room putting the extra effort in and two years are going to be a better player than that all-state kid that somebody else took.
0: Right. J.D., before we go to fit, I want to I dig in on that because I think that's, that's a, a huge part of the discussion, which would be valuable for our listeners. I want you to contemplate just all of your experience in business, in sports, in uh, private equity now. Um, how important is it you having that vantage point of uh, coaching other coaches, can you be successful without being a good recruiter? So, like, from a football perspective, there are coaches that I saw that could really coach, but they struggled recruiting, and, and, the, and it's vice versa. Where would you kind of, like, what has been your experience? Can, can you be a great leader without being a good recruiter, in your opinion?
2: Uh, I don't know that you're ever going to be elite. Uh, you okay. could on a staff of 10 guys have two guys that that's not their strength and you can really, you know, get that shift that work to some other people, put them more in the evaluation phase of things. Uh, but no, I mean, that was one of the first and foremost things that I looked for with these guys. How would they interact with these kids? Would they have the capabilities of selling what we're trying to sell? Uh, and would they have, you know, you got to do a lot of extra work in recruiting. If you're going to do a good job, you got to dig and spend extra time. And um, so, uh, you can be successful, but most of your staff has to be dang good at it.
0: And there's an old saying that says, sometimes the best players don't make the best coaches. Uh, what's been your experience about people that have struggled, been great performers, but have struggled figuring out how to communicate that performance to others? What's been your experience with that?
2: Uh, it was absolutely a uh, dead on. i not saying that a great player can't be a great coach. Uh, but the guys that I've seen that are really good coaches many times have been walk-ons trying to prove themselves. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, guys that worked up the ranks that uh, came from smaller schools, played at a you – know, there's a school in California called University of Pacific that some yeah. phenomenal coaches like Pete Carroll have come from. Yeah. Um, so, no, I, I – you know, I, I don't – sometimes those guys that have, have been there um, – they don't understand all it takes to be good and the time put that you have to put in to be great. Some kids, some people are just extremely blessed uh, to be very talented. And, um, yeah, but, but the kids that overachieve are the ones, those are always the guys I've, I've always looked for.
1: I think that's true in real life. I mean, you had uh, Ted Williams was the <laughs> greatest natural baseball players, wasn't yeah. so, such a good coach. Wayne Gretzky, just phenomenal hockey player. Didn't do right, and, coach. right, and and, Your and, point, and you know they have to have struggled through that skill development and learning the game, whereas to other people it just came natural. So if you haven't struggled through it, you may not know how to develop other 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 players.
2: That's that, uh, There's no doubt, uh, and that's when you look at it, you know you see some guys, Mike Vrabel, Tennessee Titans. Mike is yeah. a great player at house. Yeah. To me, he's a little bit of an exception to the rule. But I got to know Mike when uh, Trestle used to let us come down in his Ohio State camps. And Mike then was out of football, but he was grinding his way to get back in, trying to find an in with anybody. And I knew, you know what, this guy, he's got it. He gets it. He he finds every way he can to put himself in front of other coaches. Can I help with this? And and so it's really neat to see a guy like that who, who was one of the talented ones. Uh, but has achieved, you know, obviously a high status as a head football coach. So, it, it's it's not a rule, but uh, I, I'd, I'd go along the lines long, the, long, the walk on most of the time.
0: Yeah. yeah, it's it's about a they're consciously competent. Like once you figure out why you're good, and you have the ability to teach somebody else by kind of meeting them wherever they are, those combinations I think make great make great coaches but for our listeners i mean i've always uh i've always warned the great performers that are always barking about i want to be the leader i want to be the leader i want to be the leader and when you put those people in early situations like allowing them to have the job to do things about a job maybe a future job without having the future job um, my experience is they struggle a little bit, like you said, Johnny Mac, and it's, it's, it's really good for them to really get in touch with, okay, my job now is to understand why I'm good, and I have to teach, I have to meet somebody where they are and help them get better. It's it's more complicated than people think, but, you
2: know, it really is. There's no doubt. There's no doubt, and, and I think, as John, you talked about, you know, it, sometimes when you, you you've got a natural skill set and you haven't gone through the grind, you miss a lot of the little details it mm-hmm. takes to be great and uh, those those are the things that uh, to me define the, the, really the great ones when they when they get the whole package down.
0: So yeah. we were talking a little bit about fit before we jumped over to this one, so thanks for holding on to that thought. Let's talk a little bit about some of the things I'd love to hear your experiences about. Kids that you saw or people, it doesn't matter in business or, or in football or what have you, you knew instantly they're going to add to the locker room. And then kids that you saw that were going to give you a stomach ache, you saw their talent, but you saw a stomach ache for the locker room. Could you kind of, could you, could you give us your experience of how did you work your way through that? And, you know, not just go for the talent. You have to think about the impact of the talent on the team.
2: Yeah, you know, that, that leads me to probably one of my uh, biggest failures in my career. Uh, we had uh, done some good things. So when I took over at the University of Akron, never had a league title in 115 years and hadn't been to, but uh, I think it was one bowl game. So in our second year, we uh, won the won the league championship on the last play of the game, went to a bowl game. And, you know, we had trained the staff pretty well to recruit. We were beating Michigan State on kids, beating Kansas State, big power five schools um, because of our success, because of the way our guys recruited. And uh, that next year we came out and we had some young freshman boy that were big time players. And we went down to North Carolina State. Chuck Amato had a really good football team and uh, we beat, North Carolina State, at North Carolina State wow. on the last play of the game. And it was the first BCS win in the school's history. Wow. Well, from there, it was a roller coaster. We lost to Central Michigan the next week, did some good things up and back, and, and ended up missing a bowl game. And after careful reviewing the, the year, uh, I went into my AD and I said, I screwed up. I didn't keep character and chemistry part of the, the scheme I took some kids that really aren't a fit. I got to get rid of seven players, seven talented players. Uh, if we're going to get this going in the direction we want to get it, that's going to be a tough year next year. Uh, but I think it's the right thing to do. So uh, very conscious about, about that and everything I do. Everything I do since that point, um, it was just you, you've got to understand that piece of it. I mean, there there can be a lot of guys that can help you succeed, but holy cow! Uh, if you don't look into them, they can bring down a locker room. They can bring down a sales force. They can really uh, affect you in such a negative way. So that piece of it, uh, to me, is is just too important to ignore. and uh, Really, probably the big, biggest mistake I've made, coaching or business.
0: But you had the courage to fix it, it sounds like. You didn't languish in it. You fixed it right away.
2: No, I mean, it, it was so obvious to me. And it just, it hurt me to the core that I missed that, you know, because those are things that I I had been about. I got caught up in the hype, and boy, is this going to look great. And, you know, it wasn't the right thing, and, you know, shame on me for doing that. And, you know, that, that, but that goes to another point, too. You know, as a first-time head coach, you're going to go through those growing pains. I love it when I watch the industry and I see guys that hire second-time guys like New England did with Belichick. You learn so much in that first head role, leadership role that, you know, sometimes don't guys don't succeed, but a lot of people then don't take advantage of that experience and those uh, failures that they have. Uh, yeah. And you see a lot of guys come back and just have uh, taken those lessons and elevated those, those sales forces, those teams to a different level because of the time they had in that role that they learned a lot.
1: Yeah, you can learn a lot more from your failures than you can from some of your successes, for sure. No doubt. Hey, J.D., in your locker room, before the players went out on the field, I think you used to have some motto up on the up on the door. I can't remember specifically what it said. Can you, you can you talk to that?
2: Yeah, we, we actually had a couple. We always had in the locker room, both practice locker room and the game locker room, uh, an old sign we we stole from Boston college locker room and it talked about a football game. It basically said there were an average of 72 offensive plays. Each play lasted 3.8 seconds. That's four minutes and 12 seconds. If you can't give five minutes of your best here in the next three hours to go, you know, you don't need to be in this locker room. Right. Um, give me the best five
1: a, minutes of your day right now. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But we also had another one, uh, that was been very personal for me. Uh, I was uh, having lunch with a reporter and we we got to talk and he saw that I liked quotes and different authors and things. And he, he led me to this guy named Nathaniel Darby. Uh, Nathaniel Darby was a guy in Colorado, which is where I'm from. So I guess maybe that hit a little bit of a note. Uh, but he, uh, he found some gold on his land back in the 20s. And he went out and borrowed some money from family, bought equipment, tools, and finding a little bit of gold here, finding a little bit there. After a year, got a little frustrated. Was like, I can't do this. Sold it, sold the equipment and the land to some guy. And that guy dug three more feet and hit a vein of gold and was rich beyond his means.
1: Wow. And
2: uh, Nathaniel Darby at that point said, Never again. I will not stop. I'll go three more feet, whatever we do. And this guy became the national uh, leading insurance salesman back in the uh, mid to late 20s. And So we, we took that three more feet model. And we put it in, and we said, hey, whatever anybody's doing, they're going 40 yards. There's usually a cone. We put that cone down, and then we put another cone three, three feet past that. That's awesome. We did that from, from spring through fall in every drill that we did. So we just said, these, these yards are going to add up. We're going to find a way to, you know, outwork people and do a little bit more than everybody else. And uh, it was really interesting. So we're playing Northern Illinois in, this, in the MAC championship game. And it's fourth and 17 with 17 seconds left. And we call a play and we, uh, we run a double post and our tight end runs at good depth and our quarterback pumps it and the front safety comes up. Our receiver outside who ended up winning a couple Super Bowls with uh, the Giants sticks his guy and widens him to get away from the safety, goes over the top. Kid pumps and he throws deep to the kid. And the safety was on the tight end, ran around, turned back, was going after the ball. And we catch this thing sliding into the end zone with ten seconds left in the game, and going over this DB's hand by about three feet. Wow! And uh, Ended up winning thirty-one thirty, and just it was it was phenomenal. Changed the course of the school. We we went up uh, in admissions that year like thirty-seven percent.
1: Holy uh, smokes! Yeah.
2: So it was it was it was interesting. So uh, yeah, those were the two signs that you saw. Uh, and some of those things carry on to what I'm doing now.
0: JD, give me an example of <clears throat> we all can remember the kids that hurt us in the locker room or situations that were obvious, um, people with great talent, but they just didn't have the they didn't have the character or what have you. Give me an example or anything that you can remember about the kid that you just found the perfect fit for. and you might not have seen it in recruiting. But they were on the team. They found their place in life. And they just not only elevated themselves, but elevated everybody else around them. So, like, for this, like, spotting talent that's already on your team that can actually raise the team to the next level. But, it, but that, yet that person might not even be aware of it. Does that make sense?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I can tell you right now the, the number one guy that stands out is a kid named Yogi Rock. Uh, not a kid anymore. He's actually a Pac-12 announcer. Uh, Yogi was a kid from middle of Pennsylvania, came up to camp about 5'10", 180 pounds, not very fast, and wanted to be a Division One receiver. And uh, so he came to the camp and sat down with him afterwards. I said, you know, I'm going to find better than you. And uh, but I said, Yogi, I said, you've got a lot that would be – you bring a lot to this football team and if you work hard. You can find a way to play here, maybe someday. So I'd love to have you as a walk-on. And he—he he was hurt by that. Uh, I, as my wife said, I hurt a lot of people with honesty about where I thought they could play and where they couldn't play. Um, but he ended up coming, and it'd be funny every every year he'd come into me say, "Coach, what do I need to do to start?" And I tell him the same thing every spring: Yogi, if you start, we're in trouble. But here's what I need you to do: you need to, you need you need to train these guys all summer. I said, I trust you. The quarterbacks trust you. And there's going to be a time and a place when you are on the field in critical situations. And so he did that. He took it to heart. And that kid went out and he he trained him and he worked and kept a great attitude. And uh, we're playing Miami, uh, Florida uh, to go to the Orange Bowl. And it's fourth and seven. And we got Larry Fitzgerald at the time. So we call a play for Larry. Larry's open. And Yogi runs this deeper route, and uh, our quarterback had so much trust in the kid, he threw it to him. The Yogi. <laughs> over the Larry
0: Fitzgerald. Over, over Larry.
2: <laughs> Holy, Holy smokes. smokes. Uh, but this is a kid also that, you know, he not only did that, but he went and did an internship with the mayor one summer. Then with the financial institution, comes out of college, and he gets on Pete Carroll's staff as a graduate assistant. Next thing you know, he's doing movies. He's directing Uh, directed a film. He uh, now works for the Pac-12 Network and uh, does some things in Hollywood. And he just knew he was going to be a successful guy. But he changed the dynamics of our locker room just because of the kind of kid he was. And and people gravitated towards him. They listened to him. And, you know, he had an unbelievable work ethic. And they modeled that because if this guy who wasn't going to play much could do those things, then you know, dang well, they could too.
1: Did he catch the ball, J D? No. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> and and uh, you said to the court what did you say to the
2: quarterback oh, when he came oh, off? <laughs> oh, I couldn't believe that. No. Oh, anyway, it, it, says,
1: it says everything about the
2: kid, right? I mean a yeah. quarterback that would do that. And, no, you the quarterback really thought that he
1: trusted him, like you said. Yeah. He's been around him like basically all year, and he's like, right. "Okay, I'm throwing to the kid. He deserves yeah. it." You know, and,
2: and that's and so. But I mean, that, I mean, that's a great story, right? You don't have to tell the great ending story. like that, John. You could have held that question. It was a much better story. You <laughs> oh, I
1: know awesome. that I was wondering what happened, so I'm sure a lot of other people are wondering oh, yeah. what happened.
2: No, I, I mean, that's but. I mean, those, those, well, you did finish the
0: story though, JD. You finished the story. You talked about where he is Uh, now. Football uh, was a little, little chapter of his life. Where he is now and what he's done is really Uh, the end of the story.
2: Absolutely. Which is awesome. Hey,
0: we were talking earlier and I don't, I think we kind of blew over this. So I want to give you a little, um, some major kudos. So you take over a program that was, um, there was a down program at the time you walk in, I think 2004 to 2005, like in a very short period of time, you turn this program over, you take the, I I thought I read you took them to the first bowl game and it might be in the second bowl game, but it was a long period of time between bowl games. And then you get coach of the year in the conference in 2005. What I'm really interested for our listeners to hear is when you take over a program, it's not just the it's not just the football team and the recruiting. You got to get everybody around you to believe. You got to get administration to believe, you got to get the academic counselors to believe, you got to get the boosters to believe. And would you mind just taking a few minutes just going back to that time frame in your mind and talk about the alignment because there's people out there that are like they're deciding whether do I take over that project and is it going to be too hard or do I try to find something where, you know, maybe somebody steps away from a top program or what have you in business or whatever. Could you just talk about your thought process, number one, and number two, how did you get everybody aligned behind what you were trying to do? Um,
2: You know, it's interesting. That that was one of the first things uh, that was, came to my mind was the culture and, and how you change that. And, uh, you know, football has a bad rap of being their own little entity. Yeah. Uh, you know, and everybody's supposed to, supposed to support, uh, support them. And that wasn't my mindset at all. You know, I thought we were real privileged to have the opportunity to play football there, to have our education paid for. And so we did enormous things to reach the community. Uh, I, was at, I was at the uh, band concerts. I'd have players at band concerts in uniforms. Uh, we would raise money and get money to the cheerleaders and the pom-poms and things like that. Uh, academic counseling. I, you know, I was an academic all American, the only goal I, I achieved in college that I wanted. Uh, and so I made sure that my players and our support system understood that was going to be a piece of it. You know, that whatever they did, they were going to walk out of here with a degree, a meaningful degree. So, uh, you know, I remember going out and buying pizzas, delivering them to the frats and the sororities just to get people to games. Uh, so I touched, or part of our staff touched, everywhere on campus. Uh, you know, we'd be in our student union, making sure that people saw us there helping out community service. We would, we would go to the hospitals, children's hospital on Fridays before games and deliver some things to the kids there. So we, we made it very known that we wanted to be their team. And uh, we were going to support the community as much as they supported us. And uh, to this day, I, I think it's one of the greatest things we did. Uh, because, you know, it, it was interesting to see. You'd see a, a band player come on the field after the game and give one of our players a hug. Those two never had talked before that. And, mm-hmm. and so you, you created an energy and a synergy within the the community there that really that really rallies it and gives it something it hasn't had in a long time. Now we we go to this bowl game and we had bus or bus after bus heading from Ohio to Detroit for this bowl game and uh, they hadn't had much to be excited about in a long time there. So, right. uh, but it was an important piece. Just like you said, you have to reach all the entities. It's it's so much easier when you have your other team members that maybe not feel as big a part of it on your side. It's no different with with the sales force, a company. You got to make sure you're touching everybody and they feel important to the process.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Outstanding. Outstanding. Hey, JT, um, so yeah, we've
1: been Johnny. on some winning teams and we've also been on some situations where things aren't going right, whether that's, you know, the current quarter as a sales guy or yep. or the current scoreboard or the, or the number of wins during the season, you know, can you share any lessons about leading teams when it's a, when it's a like a difficult situation, you look around, and people aren't all looking like they're up and ready to go, you know?
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that you know, I think that it kind of depends where you've come from, right? Uh, if you haven't won before, then you really better look and self-reflect on, on why. But, uh, you know, we, we had a situation we we turned things around at Pitt pretty quick. You know they had eleven straight losing seasons. We're in a bowl game the first year, winning record, and um, we come out. I guess it was three years later, and uh, we decided to do a few things new with the no huddle offense and speed things up. And uh, we lose to South Florida, who wasn't very good at the time, and I think that put us at like one in four, one in five. And we'd just been to a bowl game the previous season when AD comes in and basically reads us the riot act and said, you know, things better change quickly. And he walked out of the room, and I remember our head coach, and it was a great, great lesson for me. He looked back at me and goes, it's not like all of a sudden any of you guys are not good coaches anymore. You were good coaches the last three years. You're good coaches right now. We are sticking to our plan. We tweaked a few things, uh, but we stuck to what we believed in. Because uh, we had had success with it, yeah. um, but like I said, you know, if you're someone who's getting there for the first time and uh, not having a lot of self, a lot of, re- of success, then yeah, you better <laughs> take a look at yourself and see what you're, you're doing incorrectly. But yeah, I think a big part of it was sticking to it and continuing the same consistent message of what you're trying to do. And uh, there's going to be those times, right? Whatever, what marriage, business, athletics, uh, right. you got to grind through it. And, uh, you know, it doesn't mean you can't look in areas for improvement, but half the battle is being there, right? and Sticking to
1: it. Yeah. And as a leader in those situations, almost all the time, you always have somebody peeping in your ear who thinks they know what's bad. So (laughs) as a leader, what becomes really difficult, maybe you talk a little bit to this, is you hear what they say. And then you have to register whether or not that does make sense to do that or not. Sometimes it is a really great idea. And sometimes it's just somebody that just has a freaking of strong opinion, but it's a terrible idea, you know, Right. as you talked about before, you know, even, in, you know, when you're at Akron, you had all these different people around you, all these different groups and probably everybody had a freaking opinion on what you should do next. How do you handle that? Yeah,
2: no. I, and I think, uh you know the one thing I, I always thought is you, you hire people smarter than you, right? Hire people yes. who can do your job, and uh, I think you have to take take into account with it what what you're hearing from people, and but you also got to have evaluate those relationships and, and their motivations uh, of what they're looking for. Some people have absolutely great insight, and and it's mm. extremely valuable if you have an open environment. You know to take that advice and go that direction because you know what that guy saw it a little different than I did and that's okay right. uh, so I, I'm not the smartest guy in the room so let's let's look at it now I got ultimately it falls on me and I've got to make decisions right uh, and, and I think that's what you have to believe so I was always open to hearing people's ideas and their thoughts and uh, if it made sense no problem we, we can go that route. Uh, if it didn't make sense and I didn't believe in it, then certainly that wasn't a great choice for the direction of the program I was running. Um, but you know, I, I think you have to instill the ability for those guys and your group uh, to, to bring things to you because there are. I mean, I, there's a lot of great ideas out there, yeah. a lot of great input that you can get. You've got to manage that, and that's on you as a leader. Uh, but certainly to shut it off because you're sitting in the top seat probably a pretty stupid thing to do right
1: yeah oh for sure for sure i think one of the things that you're talking about though is which you've mentioned a couple times is consistency i think what happens when people the numbers aren't showing you know the right way they're not positive then people think oh maybe we could take a shortcut here and and, you know at least what i found out is (laughs) there's (laughs) no freaking shortcut there's no shortcut
2: there never is And, and if there is there's consequences to it, right?
0: Totally.
2: Yeah. Always. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's not the path I know we're in. So,
0: JD, yeah. I'm dying to. Um, I think you ha- you're such a humble dude. The way Johnny described you, I'm so glad that our listeners are getting a chance to hear you. Um, you know, you're you started off as a walk on it at, at Brigham Young, and and you you go and you start for. Three years in Colorado, you wind up with a shot at the NFL, and you're an academic All-American. And what I'm most fascinated about your background is the diversity of your career. So you have an athletic background, you have um, you have you have high academics. You you go into corporate America you make a decision in corporate America to follow your passion in um, in coaching. Could you walk us through at a high level, how did you balance decision criteria with personal, family, whatever it was, to make decisions to follow your path? And think about all the listeners that we have that are you know, it's it's one thing to say follow your passion, but it ain't as easy right. to 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 make no. it happen. So, what are some of the big things that you use as criteria to just keep you grounded with those decisions?
2: Well, I, I, yeah, it it was. Uh, I guess it's part of its phases of life, right? So I'm young, and uh, I, I'm set. I I know what I want to do. I want to coach college football, and so I'm set to go to UCLA as a graduate assistant going to get my MBA while I'm there. And, uh, I have a chance to go to the NFL. And so I passed up that opportunity to coach, to go into the NFL. And I'm 21, 22 years old. I don't make it. I get cut. And, uh, you know, like most people, most young guys at that time, we didn't want to stay at home. Right. Now these kids all want to stay at home until they're 30.
1: Uh, (laughs) I wanted to get out.
2: So I, I got a job and, uh, It was in sales. It was at a golf tournament. Eventually, the guy said, you know, you're pretty good at this. You know, you should try and get more formal training. And That's when I went and interviewed for Xerox. So I started to make money, and I grew up uh, fairly poor. My dad was a teacher, uh, five kids, and, uh, you know, it was kind of fun to make a little bit of money. So I went through the sales and and got recruited a couple different ones, and I'm sitting in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I'm 30 years old, and I'm still single. I'm like – I can't give up. I want to coach and I want to coach college. And so, you know, here's, I guess, one of my things that I've done well in my life is um, I believe in a path, the best path to your goal. And I also believe in the power of who uh, and the ability to use those contacts. And so uh, I said, well, how am I going to get to coach college? And uh, again, I didn't have a wife at the time. And I said, well, I'm going to go start in the NFL, right? I'm selling CAD CAM software. They should hire me. Uh, so I, I called a guy. My college roommate's dad played golf with Mike Shanahan regularly. I said, "Can you get me 30 minutes with him?" He goes, "Yeah." Why? I told him what I wanted to. He goes, "Yeah, I guess I can." And so uh, I went with met with Shanahan. I'm in my suit, and he's in his t-shirt and shorts, and I uh, just gotten the job at the Broncos. And I told him what I wanted to do, and. Keeping it short, he told me no 11 times in 30 minutes. And finally, he just, I think he just got sick of me and told me I could come to camp. And so uh, I did everything they asked. I'm 30 years old. I'm getting gas for their cars. I'm holding bags for drills and whatever they asked me to do, I do. And uh, do that for a couple of years. And they ended up getting me the job at Pittsburgh. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I, was able to leverage some things i got an offer from green bay after a year or two years there and uh i'd set goals my one of my goals was to be a coordinator by the time i was 35. Uh, and at that time i was a young guy and i wanted to be a head division one coach by the time i was 40. so uh got an offer from green bay went back to the head coach and said what's it going to take to keep you i said make me the coordinator well, i'm 34 years old and i've become the coordinator at Pitt. So uh, now maybe this is too much more than you want to hear. But, oh, this is uh,
1: great. This is great. Yeah.
2: So then we, had, we we're doing pretty well at Pitt uh, offensively. Uh, have a lot of success. And the University of Akron job comes open. And uh, I call up the AD who I had met at, a final, at an Elite Eight basketball game. I said, hey, Mike, I'd really like to apply for that. I said, great. Call my headhunter. So I called the headhunter. He said, send me your resume. So I sent him the resume. He goes, you know, you're not even close. You haven't been coaching enough. You had enough experience. You got no chance. Okay. So I called the AD back up and I said, Mike, give me one hour. I'll meet you in Youngstown, Ohio. Hour for you, hour for me. Just give me an hour. So I guess it went well enough that I ended up getting brought in for the final five. Uh, And, you know, I thought I'd put together a pretty good plan. If I could, I'd love to talk about that in a second, my head coaching notebook. Um, But I did well. I think they offered somebody before me, quite honestly. But uh, I was down in Orlando. Larry was uh, Fitzgerald was picking up the uh, Bolitnikov Award. And I get a call that, hey, would you take the job? I said, yeah. He goes, well, it's only going to pay X amount. I'm like, Mike, I don't care. Yeah, I'll take that job. So I become – a head Division One football coach at age 39. I'm the second youngest division one football coach in the, in the nation at the time. I'm actually go first games against Joe Paterno. He's in his 39th year as a head coach. <laughs> wow. Wow. Uh,
1: you're 39 so, and he's been coaching he's been 39 coaching. <laughs> yeah. And so did that. We had
2: some you know, some success after him, had some things go perfectly wrong, got fired in 09. Uh, And my father-in-law asked me if I would run their family foundation. I said, well, I'm getting paid another year from Akron. But if CU or Texas calls me, I want to go back to coach. And otherwise, I'll run the foundation. And in December, they called and said, CU called and said, you want to come coach? I said, absolutely. It was an old friend of mine. Uh, That was a disaster. Uh, They fired us. They should have fired us. And so I'm sitting there and I'm looking. I've got four boys. We've moved now the last few years quite a bit. I'm like, you know, I don't know if I want to go this path. Different phase of life. And so I went back. I said, hey, I'll run the foundation, but we need to do more than that. And that's when we started the holding company. And he had had one investment he was working on. And we eventually grew that to, to three uh, different companies that, that we're investing in. And uh, hard stuff, material science. So it's not easy. Uh, we're still, still in uh the phase of making it happen, but I think we're really close to two of them. Uh, but so, yeah, I mean, I think it's a phase of life, and I think it's a, a bit of uh, how willing and determined you are to make things happen for yourself. And, and, and do you appreciate the path that you're going down? Do you have you established good contacts? Are you willing to use those contacts? Uh, because I, I talk to my boys about that constantly. I, I look back on it, and I don't know of a job I got by myself. You know, I, I had somebody helping me or somebody I met along the way uh, that just changed the course of my life. And so, you know, I, uh, I I just feel fortunate to be around the people I've met through the course of my career. Um, but I do want to circle back. You got time? Yeah, you're a humble just, guy, dude.
1: Yeah, really. A humble dude, guy. I just want to summarize, like, what I heard as a listener there. Like, one thing that you did is you – you you talked about consistency before in coaching and what you did is you stayed true to your goals you know even no when the thing came up at green bay and some other things where you could have went off on a tangent you had yeah. set goals and there were other distractions and other decision processes you had to go through but you stayed true to your goals you stayed consistent and then at the end of the day, I think you were very, very realistic. So those are the, you know, things that I took from your story. Which
2: yeah, is- yeah. I mean, I guess to add to that, there was another time I got a call from the Arizona Cardinals after Larry had left Pitt, and they wanted me to leave the Akron head job to become the receiver coach at Arizona. And it was ten grand a month more than I was making at Akron. And, uh, you know, that decision process was way different. That wasn't about me. That wasn't about my family. That was about 10 different families. Uh, and whose lives I would have affected by taking that job because they would have went a different direction for a head coach. And so uh, it did keep me on my path, like you said, consistency. Uh, I turned down a lot of money that might have been nice for the family at the time. You know, we're kind of check to check, a little better than check to check, but we weren't raking it in by any means. Right. Uh, so I think you've got to go back to a little bit of the character piece too. You can't you you know, there's times in life where you got, you got to look at for yourself and your family. Uh, but there's sometimes there's a greater hole that you got to look after too.
0: Yeah. Awesome. J.D. talk about, yeah, I know you're talking about your, uh, you want to talk to us about the, the, uh, playbook or the 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 operating rhythm that you had, the head coaching book. Talk to us about it.
2: Yeah, this, this was a really good experience for me. So when the AD agreed to see me for an hour, uh, we were getting ready to play Miami that week. And, you know, you work 6 a.m. to 10, basically, during the week. And so after 10, this graduate assistant and I would get down and we'd work on my head coaching notebook, which is what you're presenting to the ADs and all their board. And so I had uh, known Bill Cower, Mike Malarkey, Shanahan, and I had their notebooks. And so I'm piecing these things together. Oh, this is good, and this is good. Oh, that, that sounds good. And finally, I, I was like a day and a half into this and putting the, all this Mike Malarkey, Bill Cower, Shanahan stuff together. I'm like, wait a minute. This isn't what I'm about. Mm. And so I just thought about how did I get to where I'm at now and what am I going to base this program on? And uh, that turned the corner for me both in terms of I think probably getting the job but really having a culture that I created there. And I look back on my life, I was about three things. It was about accountability, okay, productivity, and persistence. And, and I carried that message to the students. We're going to have accountability on the field, in the classroom, and in the community. We're going to be as productive as we can in, in, in the, on the field, in the classroom, and in the community. And we're going to persist without exception. And that's just what, what I believe was why I had some success and what I thought we could build a culture on. And uh, I've stuck to that to this day. I just, I believe in those things and uh, not an overly talented guy by any means, but persisting and expecting to be accountable and productive as you can be puts you probably in a pretty good spot, right?
1: Yeah, no, I love that, JD, because that speaks to your character as a leader. You know, it speaks to you and what you're all about. It's really powerful.
0: Johnny and JD, I'm going to summarize here on some great things that that we heard. And Johnny, I'm going to – there's so many golden nuggets in this, so I want to make sure that you get a chance to put yours in there too. But um, I loved the three feet. That was a big takeaway for me. Your humility as you're talking, I'm just – I wrote down servant leadership and, and what a great example – you are of servant leadership. We talked about the importance of recruiting the right people with the right fit for the entire team. Um, the, the the mindset of the walk-on, being able to articulate and learn from the struggle and therefore be able to coach through the struggle was a big takeaway for me. Um, the head coaching uh, notebook, which really you're putting together other people's things. And then you said, wait a second, I want to be true to myself. And I'm really about three things, accountability, productivity, and consistency. And those were some big takeaways for me. Johnny, did you have any other ones?
1: Just how JD's been really true to himself, true to himself as a leader. Um, constantly being you know consistent and I think mixed in all of that or surrounded by all that is is being very very realistic about where he is the team that he has you know what's in front of him and what is he going to do about it and that's that's what you really need to be a great leader it's really hard the only only other thing is that we touched on early is how you have to be intimate with your players If you don't really get to know your players, if you don't get to understand, you know, their fears, their securities, their doubts, their motivations, um, you're going to have a really difficult time motivating that group of people. Um, Love that. Not not treating them cookie cutter. They're all. Love that.
0: Well done. J.D., you ready for a little uh, rapid fire? We like to do this at the end of the podcast, a little rapid fire for fun. All right. Um, Just a few kind of easy questions here. What is your ideal day off of work?
2: Oh, I can tell you that one. So (laughs) Back in uh, the coaching days, um, we'd go down to Naples. And uh, I'd get up. uh, We'd take a quick walk along the beach, come back. I'd go downstairs in the condo to the sauna and steam, shower, come back up and we'd walk down to her folks place and uh, have a little breakfast. Then we'd take the kids out to the beach and pool, come back for a little lunch, go back to the beach for a little bit, and then have a margarita in the afternoon, get the kids back to bed and sit out sit out on the lunar night and hear the ocean come in. I, I, the sound of water is just, Therapy for
0: me. You so. just described John McMahon's daily routine, man, <laughs> in, in Naples, Florida. Yeah, JD, right. you know he's in Naples, and oh, I'm no. south. I'm a little I'm south jealous. in Marco Island, so come down and visit
2: us. Oh, I'm going to. Uh, yeah, it's Naples is it's just it for me. Yeah, that whole Gulf Coast. Yeah, is, is a special place. All they right, we're invited any time.
0: We're going to hold you to it. That'll <laughs> be a blast. All right, JD, what's your favorite meal?
2: Ooh, Javier's Cabo Azul the, on PCH in Newport Beach. It's a crab enchilada, a lobster taco, and then a, uh, I can't remember the other one. Another, uh, oh, Chili Riano, crab Chili Riano.
0: Those are those are unique <laughs> ones. I love those. He's very, very specific. Jamie. Those are specific jobs. He knows the yeah. place we've and gotten, the menu. We've I gotten know. pizza and some sushi <laughs> no, no, no. Let's, and let's I say, like this, yours,
2: JB. This is the place. And here, here, but here's the deal. That that plate's gone up in the last twelve months from twenty-eight dollars to forty six now. Yeah. Uh, so this is
0: and so Time did the, the times, gas right? to get you. So did the gas to get you
2: to the restaurant. <laughs> oh, <thing. that's> right.
0: <laughs> all right, favorite movie, JD? Oh, Gladiator. Yes, yeah. great. Yeah, movie. I like that one. I love it. Good. I thought yeah. you were going to say, "Remember the Titans."
2: No, no, that was good. That was good. Well, was, that, that was a good one. one. All I right. I say when Harry met Sally, but. <laughs> all right, all right,
0: all right. Nachos <laughs> slash potato chips. Or hamburger, cheeseburger? Can I, go I think I messed that one, up. Can I go on, I mess that one up. Hang on, I messed that one up. I think
1: Kathleen messed that thing up.
0: I messed that up. How could I mess that up? Nachos or potato chips, brother? Nacho. All right, easy. Hamburger cheeseburger? Hamburger. Absolutely. Would yeah. you say hamburger? Yeah, uh-huh. for sure. All right. All right, last one, and I know it. Academic All American. Let's let's rip the cover off this one. Gotcha. Favorite subject in school?
2: I'll tell you, my most influential was a class called DECA, Distributive Education Clubs of America. Uh, it, it really took me out of a shell. Uh, it was a business class. Learned about human relations, a little bit about sales, and uh, probably was a catalyst to catalyst to me getting into sales. Mm.
1: Served you well. I can't thank you enough. I think there's so many amazing nuggets just in this last hour. I feel like we could have talked to you for hours and got a lot more, but thank you so much for doing this. Very, very good. Thank you, John.
0: good.
2: Good catching up again.
0: Cap, pleasure. J.D., it was great meeting you. Thank you for being with us. And for all of you listening, thank you to listening to Revenue Builder. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.